This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show, and we welcome back to our show State Representative Mindy Dom, the representative from the 3rd Hampshire District that is uh, that consists of Amherst and Pelham and the 1st Precinct in Granby. Representative Dom, we were talking before we went on the air about the COVID memorial event. Uh, it's uh, only one of the many topics I wanted to talk with you about this morning, but it's start, my morning started by looking up covid because I couldn't remember, well, actually, this is for my article, my column in this upcoming weekend's Gazette, where COVID is an important piece. And I was confused about whether COVID was capitalized or not and couldn't remember what COVID was the acronym for. It seems to have mm. been with us for so very long that I didn't capitalize it. That's a mistake. COVID is actually an acronym. You know this, Monty? You remember? I used to remember it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like, it's so it's part, much part of coronavirus, CO, CO, corona, uh, virus, virus, VI, disease, COVID. Oh, yeah. 19, the year it was mm-hmm. discovered. Right. So let's go back to the event, uh, or let's bring up the event, the COVID memorial event. Can you tell us about this, please, Representative Dom? Yeah. It, um, it's the brainchild of. Uh, Hampshire County resident Jennifer Ritz Sullivan, who lost her mom pretty early in the pandemic and has really sort of um, galvanized the community of, of people who have lost people to the disease to do what we can to mem- remember and memorialize their lives. So just as you maybe couldn't remember what they um, COVID stood for, Bill, a lot of folks don't remember that during the during the height of the pandemic at the beginning and through the most part the first year, people who lost people um, to the disease, um, parents who died, grandparents who died, spouses who died, siblings who died, could not grieve in public. You know, they weren't allowed. We weren't allowed to have um, funerals where people could come together. Um, there weren't opportunities for people to join. I went to a couple of Zoom funerals, but, you know, that wasn't quite the same. And so this is really, I think, an opportunity for people not only to remember and acknowledge the loss, but to come together and to share that loss in person. It will be outdoors. Um, Masks, I think, are, um, you know, people shouldn't feel uncomfortable if they want to wear a mask. Um, Jennifer has done an incredible job of sort of leading this effort to remember those who have been lost and to acknowledge um, the grief and sorrow. And I'm proud to say that um, Rep. Natalie Blay and I have co-filed a bill this se- past session, and we'll do it again next session, um, that was brought to us by Jennifer to create a COVID Remembrance Day in Massachusetts. Um, and so we'll continue that effort in the legislature. And I'm really honored to um, be able to go to this event um, I'm in awe of the organizing for it because it's coming out of a deep sense of pain, but also a deep sense of community and community connection. Um, and I, I look forward to it. And I, I think the public is welcome to come. And it's, I think, September 10th um, from 1.30 to 3.30, I think. Is that correct, Monty? That's correct. And it's Monty at 3 Sisters Sanctuary in Goshen, yes. And I'll be there as well. I've known Jennifer Ritz Sullivan. Uh, she was a cancer connection, camp out camper. Uh, she actually lost a step parent to cancer. So she's 
got uh, sadly so many things to be grieving about in her life so far. And uh, she's wanted to do this event for over a year. They had to put it away last year until it was a little bit safer, but hopefully things will be safe enough to do it. And it's really, it's remarkable how much corporate trauma we've experienced through this pandemic and have not really stopped to pause and think about it. So there are people locally who have gone through um, Jennifer and the organization that she works with to remember people um, who have lost loved ones to COVID uh, and written small obituaries that both Representative Dom, Representative Blay, and I will be reading that day. And, you know, Monty, that reminds me, and I think for lots of people, it reminds them also of a lot of the AIDS events mm. um, where people's names were read, not necessarily obitu- full obituaries, but their names were read as a way to give that person and their immediate sort of communities the recognition that they were impacted by this virus in a different way than maybe other people. And I think that's so important, right, is to not only acknowledge that person's loss, but the community of loss that exists for that person. Um, And I think the name of the organization I think that Jennifer works with is Marked by COVID. That's right. And And you can find them on social media. And I've also followed, as I think um, many of us have from the beginning, um, a Twitter handle known as Faces of COVID, which is actually run by a Massachusetts resident, Alex Goldstein. And since the very beginning, he has used the Twitter sort of format and this particular account to post obituaries of people throughout the country who have died from COVID so that there's a remembrance that we can't just turn away from this, that um, not only people's lives have been lost and that's all by itself incredibly valuable to recognize, but they have left a community. And so we as a country are still feeling the loss. Yeah. I was very, very struck when you and Monty were talking, Representative Dom, about people losing loved ones, particularly at the beginning of this pandemic. And I remember so distinctly how, while often elderly, not always, but often elderly people mm-hmm. were restricted, quarantined with COVID in either a hospital or, or a nursing home, and they couldn't receive visitors. And people yep. would have to be outside windows saying, oh, I love you and goodbye. And that's something that I think we have put blinders on. We just don't want to remember how horrifying it was. We've lost over a million people to COVID and people now kind of shrug their shoulders in some ways. I don't really understand that. If you had said two years ago, hi, we're going to lose a million people to a disease and people say, oh, that's ridiculous. That could never happen in the United States. And it's exactly what happened in the United Mm -hmm. States, of course, and tens of millions, hundreds of millions actually across the globe. So, I, I really appreciate uh, both this event. We should note it's uh, uh, at Three Sisters Sanctuary in Goshen on September 10th from 1.30 to 3.30. Monty, you, you'll be reading some obituaries. Representative Dom, you'll be reading some obituaries as well. Yes, yes and so will Replay. And the the location is gorgeous. I don't know if you've been there. If you've seen driving uh, you know, through the Goshen-Ashfield area near the the DAR, there's a giant Tin Man sculpture. That is the Three Sisters Sanctuary. It's a beautiful sculpture garden. And uh, the the owner there, Richard Richardson's own mother passed away due to COVID as well and had already donated the space last year. 
um, uh, for free to do this event and then subsequently lost his own mother. So this, you know, these are real people and real ties to real human lives and real communities, as Representative Dom said. And so this is just the beginning of us taking a moment to pause and think about what we've all experienced. Yeah, and yeah our, our common pain, right? Our, our shared grief and not just um, like, like, and not just letting our neighbors sort of grieve and um, experience it in isolation, especially at this point of the pandemic, but coming together. Can I just say that the legislation, I just want to point out that the legislation that Replay and I have filed also, the COVID Remembrance Day recognizes those who we have lost, but it also has this other piece that also recognizes um, the incredible um, work and commitment of the people who cared for people with COVID, healthcare providers and others, as well as essential workers who helped make, um, allowed us to get through that part of the pandemic. Like it's not just, it's a remembrance of what, you know, what we need to kind of acknowledge as how our community has come through this in its pain, but also in some of the heroes that um, have emerged from it. I have a comment and a question. The comment is that the United States is still losing 450 to 500 people a day to COVID. Mm -hmm. This is not in the rear view mirror. I understand right. that we keep talking about COVID as if it's been and gone, but it's not that. It's something that is continuing. It's just that the new normal seems to accept a certain number of deaths from COVID. It would be 25,000 deaths this year. That's half the number of um, United States uh, service personnel who died in Vietnam. It's a huge number of people, 25,000 people a year still dying, and we now collectively shrug our shoulders at this. I, I, I find it astounding. I mean, my, my uncle, uh, on his death certificate, he just passed recently, um, and the word COVID is one of those causes of death, mm. and it's, it's, it's still with us. It's still here. And I, I am uh, moved and heartened by your uh, introduction of this legislation, uh, COVID Remembrance Day. What, what would, if the legislation were to pass and officially Massachusetts were to have a COVID Remembrance mm -hmm. Day, uh, what, what does that mean exactly? It means that for in the legislation, we identify the first Monday in March to be um, kind of designated this day to, as a way to also commemorate when the executive order went into effect around the public health emergency. And it would be a day that we could reflect. So, for example, some, for a lot of Remembrance Days, what that means is there's, it's still a work day. It's not like a state holiday where you don't go to work, but there may be a vigil. There could be community events that people come together. There could be educational events, not only about public health issues, but also about the uh, mental health issues that come from a pandemic, the continuing grief. So there's just an opportunity for this, the Commonwealth as a whole to recognize the impact of the pandemic and to sort of take stock, acknowledge and reflect and use that time to do that. It could also be a time to reflect on what we've learned from the pandemic and what we're applying to you know, make life better and what we still have to do to make life better. Um, it could be a discussion of where we're at with vaccination and immunization. It could talk, I mean, there's so many different things. It could be a way to celebrate essential workers and their heroism and their commitment to our community during the pandemic. It could be a way to recognize healthcare providers. So there's a range 
But it's, I think the most important part here, Bill, is that it's a, it's a day that forces us to stop and acknowledge. And there's, we've been so quick, as you kind of point out, to sort of move on to this new normal. But so many in our community can't just move on, right? They're experiencing this very deep personal loss. Um, and it's a way to support them in that situation and a day to also, I think, support us as a commonwealth to do better. Um, to do better now in the current pandemic and to do better in future. Which leads me to my, uh, I think, final question about this for the morning, which is that is Massachusetts uh, and writ large, is the country doing anything significant to prepare for what will be the next pandemic, whether it's in five years or 10 or 20? You know, I have a lot of feelings. I don't, I don't think we're doing enough. Um, I think that, you know, on the state level, we had this great bill that Senator Comerford was one of the leaders on in the Senate um, that uh, passed that would have given a whole lot of resources to local public health um, as a way of recognizing the local public health infrastructure um, and its weaknesses that were revealed during COVID to try to strengthen them. And we couldn't get it across the finish line this past session. I am, I am hoping and I'm pretty confident we'll be able to do it next session. But, you know, responding to future pandemics and epidemics require us to be a lot more looking in the mirror and facing facts and dedicating resources than we've been wanting to do. I mean, I'm not so sure we're in a great position for the current um, COVID pandemic. You know, we've got DESE in the state saying that there'll be no masks in classrooms, no testing in schools. The federal government, the Republicans have prevented funding for tests, um, wide, uh, wide scale availability of COVID tests in the fall. Um, I think we're going to see in the next couple of weeks if we are prepared even for the pandemic of 2022. Um, but I don't want to end on a totally negative um, point of view, because I think that there's a lot of people who are um, speaking out and trying to urge government to be more responsive and not to turn away. It's and not to say, OK, we're exhausted. You know, we're, we're tired of talking about the pandemic. Let's let's move on to a different issue. We, it's still here. As you pointed out, it's still here. People are still getting sick. People are still getting infected. I don't know. I mean, every time I turn around, I find out about more people I know who are infected um, and who've been ill, who've experienced symptoms. Thank God they haven't um, died. Um, and, you know, it's just we're still we're still grappling with it. We can't ignore it. We can't we can't ignore it. But that doesn't make it go away. We're speaking with State Representative Mindy Dom. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with the representative after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. There are farm fresh eggs just around the corner and beef across town. Local food is all around. It's a connection to your community, to the land and the people. There's a handy guide to the farm fresh food all around you, the local hero guide on the CISA website. You never know how close you are to something good for dinner tonight, something harvested just this morning. CISA's Local Hero Guide, your guide to farm fresh food, on the CISA website, buylocalfood.org. Hi, this is Nick Seaman from the Black Sheep in downtown Amherst. We're now open seven days a week from 8 a.m., and we have live music every Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 1. 
We continue to make our great sandwiches, bake our wonderful croissants, danish breads and desserts, and brew Dean's Beans Organic Coffee. We also have a freezer full of entrees to go that will help you simplify your life. And if you're having a party, let us know how we can help you make it a success. Just call our catering department to talk about menu options. On a political note, always remember that the Second Amendment says, quote, well regulated. Make sure you call your congressman and senator and demand that they do their jobs. We're the Black Sheep in downtown Amherst, having fun with food and politics since 1986. Save 30% at WHMP.com. If your Spanish-speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among coworkers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100% of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. When it comes to investing, we're taught the higher the risk, the better the reward. Francis Ram, the money doctor, says it isn't necessarily true. We need to remember that with risk comes the potential for losses, and making up losses can set us back or worse, delay our retirement. You've heard the testimonials for years about how her patented program helps people become 100% debt-free, far ahead of schedule. But did you know that for more than 35 years, Dr. Ram has been helping people retire well without unnecessary risk? Dr. Ram says most people mistakenly accept that in order to earn attractive interest rates, they must tolerate risk and that choosing safety means settling for lackluster returns. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can earn competitive rates and minimize taxes without risking a single dollar of your hard-earned savings. Contact the money doctor at Hug Your Money for a free consultation. Call 413-773-3333 or visit HugYourMoney.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Representative Mindy Dom, the representative for the 3rd Hampshire District, which consists of Amherst, Pelham, and the 1st Precinct. That's half of Granby. We were talking with the representative in the first part of our show about the event, the COVID Remembrance Day event that will occur at Three Sisters Sanctuary in Goshen, September 10th from 1.30 to 3.30. We continued our conversation about awareness and about days that commemorate certain events and problems and issues and what can be done and why they are important to, in the community and why they do stitch together the fabric of our community and communities. And I believe it is today and tomorrow at Springfield, Chickabee, Holyoke, in Northampton, there is another awareness day that is being commemorated and celebrated is most certainly not the word, but observed probably is. Representative Don, want to tell us about that? Yes, thank you, Bill. So um, August 31st is known as Overdose Awareness Day, and it really is a way to commemorate and remember, memorialize people who we've lost to opioid overdoses. And um, not only the people who we've lost directly, but also as a way of connecting to their families, their communities, um, and those individuals who may have um, suffered um, and that great loss and are grieving so that they don't have to grieve alone so that we can come together as a community. 
And so this is like we were talking before about what happens during a Remembrance Day. And it's a good example to see what's happening in the valley around overdose awareness because there are different kinds of activities happening in different places. So I think today Springfield is having like a walk so people can come together, um, be outdoors together, and I think raise funds for um, organizations that are working on behalf of people who are using drugs and also their families. Um, I think Chicopee tomorrow is having a flag raising as well as a way to memorialize folks. Northampton's had an event for many years where it's sort of a combination of an educa- a community education piece, but also like a speak out for people who have lost um, people, as well as for edu- uh, um, educators to talk about what are the dangers on the streets right now for people who are using. Um, and that happens in Pulaski Park on tomorrow night at 6 o'clock. Um, and so tomorrow, I think there are activities that are happening in Chicopee, Holyoke, and Northampton today, Springfield, and they vary. Um, and a good place to find out more information about them, I think, is on the Tapestry Health um, Facebook page, because Tapestry is sort of a regional provider of services for people um, around syringe access um, and opioid um prevent overdose prevention, and they're connected to many of these events that are happening throughout the Valley. Um, It's a good time if people haven't signed up for Narcan training and they want to learn how to reverse an opioid overdose. Tapestry also is having virtual, they've had this throughout the pandemic, virtual Narcan trainings, and I think they have one coming up in a couple weeks um, in September. And, you know, we've seen in 2021 there was an increase in the number of people who died as a result of unintentional opioid overdose in Massachusetts. And a large part of that was fueled by the COVID-19 pandemic, um, both because people were isolated from each other as well as the intense mental um, stress of the pandemic. But the number one rule to prevent opioid overdoses is don't use alone. And during the pandemic, many of us, whether we used or we didn't use, were alone. We were isolated from other people. And so it put people who use opioids at greater risk. We should note that Overdose Awareness Day is a global event. It is observed in some 40 countries, began in Australia in 2001. I'd like to, if I might, ask you, Representative, some policy issues regarding uh, uh, overdose awareness and mm-hmm. uh, use of uh, uh uh, drugs um, and what the Commonwealth's position is and what our public policy is with regard to uh, heroin, fentanyl, and other highly, highly uh, addictive drugs. Um, and in particular, I'd like to know where we stand. You mentioned Narcan training. Where mm-hmm. is the Commonwealth regard to uh, safe sites and, uh, mm-hmm. and syringe access? Could you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Well, in syringe access, programs. We have many programs throughout the state that provide um, access to clean syringes. And in, they not only provide access to syringes themselves, they also provide access to the disposal of used syringes. And they also provide access to a whole host of health um, education materials, prevention materials, as well as linkage to drug and alcohol treatment programs. Um, and these programs are pretty very successful you know we have one in Northampton and in fact the one in Northampton is one of the original sort of eight that happened as a result of a pilot program um, 
in the Commonwealth, and now that aid has expanded greatly. Here's what we know about syringe access, and it's important to to recognize the benefits of it because it gets applied to other programs that also sort of try to reach people where they're at, much like syringe access doesn't judge somebody for using a syringe. It says if you're going to use um, drugs that require syringes, um, here's a clean syringe so that you don't risk getting infected with an infectious uh, virus like HIV or hepatitis, and you don't risk transmitting it to somebody else. So it's a way to keep our community healthy. But because those programs are also literally saturated with other health education um, services and materials and support, it ends up supporting those individuals who are using substances and syringes to be able to access other public health measures, including treatment. And this is really important because what we've seen in research is that the programs that exist that provide not just a syringe, but a whole range of other services, including um, access and linkage to drug and alcohol treatment programs actually result in more people seeking drug and alcohol treatment. Um, and that's a good thing. That's what we want to happen. But the other thing we know about those programs that is really important is one, they don't increase drug use in an area. Sometimes people have been afraid or concerned about a syringe access program in their community because they feel like it will be um, a way to increase drug use. People who maybe had no interest in using drugs before now will all of a sudden say, well, I can get a needle, so I might as well start using drugs. That doesn't happen. Research has shown that does not happen. And the other thing it shows is that it doesn't make people start using drugs younger. So it doesn't sort of become a magnet for drug use. Very important um, conclusions and findings from research that's happened over a decade, um, because that's the same research that we use to support the implementation of a pilot program for safe injection sites in Massachusetts. And I think that's what you were referring to, um, Bill, Yes. where we provide a site where people can come and um, you, and uh, use substances, but it's under sort of the um, oversight of a public health nurse who's there to make sure that um, over, if there's an overdose that it can be reversed. That's also providing a whole range of health education materials and services and also providing linkage to drug and alcohol treatment. So it sort of takes the syringe access program up one more notch and says if people are dying from overdose because they're using alone then we should provide a place where they're not alone so that we can help keep them alive so that they can, at some point, access other public health services like treatment. We've been speaking with State Representative Mindy Dom. Representative, uh, I think this has been a really important conversation. It was not on my list of things to ask you about this morning, so that <laughs> list is still here. Could you stay with it for a couple more minutes? Maybe we can get to one or two of the items sure. that I have. Great. Thank we'll be you, back. We'll, we'll be back with the representative right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Polio Community College will be looking for a new leader. President Christina Royal announced she'll retire after the coming school year. Royal has led the college for the past five years. The next president will be selected in April and begin work in May to overlap Royal for a few months. There's more information about the potential tax rebate checks for Massachusetts residents. The state auditor will be finalizing the surplus amount by the end of September. If it's around the $3 billion expected, then taxpayers should receive about 12% of the income taxes they paid last year. 
And if the process moves forward as planned, Governor Baker says residents should receive a check before the holidays. The towns of Wendell and New Salem are trying to decide how best to address a dangerous chemical contaminant found in the water at Swift River Elementary School. PFAS is a class of thousands of chemicals of growing concern nationwide, which can cause cancers, reproductive problems, and a host of other health issues. After an engineer found a leak in the well casing, Wendell Finance Committee Chair Doug Tanner says a comprehensive solution involves finding the source and not just installing a filter. If our leaks are contaminating the aquifer, and their solution was simply to put filters in so that contaminated aquifer water no longer goes into the pipes in Swift River School. But it's okay to have that leaky well there contaminating the aquifer in perpetuity. That's absurd. PFAS has also been found in high concentrations in a cluster of wells in North Leverett. And town officials continue to investigate the source and possible solution. Mixture of sun and clouds today, warm and humid, a high of 88 to 92. Slight chance of an afternoon shower west of the Connecticut River. Showers and thunderstorms likely tonight, 64 to 70. Might even be some lingering showers as the sun rises, otherwise becoming mostly sunny, less humid, 82 to 86. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rochivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Un juez ordenó el jueves al Departamento de Justicia que hiciera pública una versión redactada de la declaración jurada en la que se basó cuando los agentes federales registraron la propiedad del expresidente Donald Trump en Florida en busca de documentos clasificados. La directiva del juez magistrado de Estados Unidos, Bruce Reinhardt, se produjo horas después de que los funcionarios federales encargados de hacer cumplir la ley presentaran bajo sello las partes de la declaración jurada que quieren mantener en secreto a medida que avanza la investigación. El juez fijó como fecha límite el viernes al mediodía para una versión redactada o tachada del documento. La orden significa que el público pronto podría obtener al menos algunos detalles adicionales sobre lo que llevó a los funcionarios del FBI a registrar Mar-a-Lago el 8 de agosto como parte de una investigación sobre documentos clasificados retenidos en la propiedad de Palm Beach. Los documentos que ya se hicieron públicos como parte de la investigación muestran que el FBI recuperó de la propiedad 11 juegos de documentos clasificados incluida información marcada en el nivel de alto secreto. En otras informaciones, la secretaria de la ciudad de Holyoke, Brenna Murphy-McGee, anunció el miércoles que a partir de este sábado 27 de agosto, iniciará la votación anticipada en persona para la elección primaria del Estado. De igual forma, este sábado es el último día para registrarse para votar para las elecciones primarias del Estado. La oficina de la secretaria municipal estará abierta para la votación anticipada y el registro de votantes de 9 de la mañana a 5 de la tarde. La votación anticipada también se llevará a cabo el domingo de 9 de la mañana a 1 de la tarde y el lunes hasta el viernes de 8.30 de la mañana a 4.30 de la tarde. La elección primaria estatal se llevará a cabo el martes 6 de septiembre de 2022. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. All the other topics were too serious for her regular intro <laughs> walk-up music there, so I got to bring it out now. I that appreciate was just talking policy and things. Yeah, we appreciate that. Okay, so we continue our conversation with State Representative Mindy Dom. 
Uh, so here's my confusion of the day. Help me out, Representative. I know we have a 1986 law that has something to do with giving back money to taxpayers that I didn't know existed. I didn't know until recently that existed. There's something like a billion dollars that's going to come back to taxpayers, but I'm not sure what that really means on an individual basis. It's all somehow all tied up with an economic development bill. I think that most most people in Massachusetts, and I think most elected representatives and the senators as well, uh, didn't even know the 1986 law existed. Um, meanwhile, none of this has passed the legislature or is uh, sort of in effect in Massachusetts, and the legislature is or is not depending on, well, depending on, I'm not sure what, in session to do something about this. So could you sort all this out for me, please? Take a full two well, minutes. I- Well, thank you for so much. I'll try to speak fast. I'll do the Federal Express version. Um, And I'm not that proficient on this, but here's my understanding. We passed at the end of the session an economic development bill that was great. Um, It was basically four bills in one. It was not only a bond bill, but it also had tax relief that was targeted and prioritized. Um, people in need, which was awesome, like it expanded the earned income tax credit. And it did a whole lot of great tax relief measures that were progressive. Um, And it also included two kinds of budgets. It included some of the money that we have for ARPA from the federal government, and it also was a supplemental budget using state revenues. But because this bill, this um, 1986-87 sort of referendum was raised at the last minute, um, and our bill had some tax relief measures in it and also overall bill required using a lot of money. I think it sort of gave leadership and members of the House and Senate pause to say, wait a second, we're passing this great bill that relies on us having all this revenue. And actually this other 1980s um, citizen referenda may actually need some of that money, leaving us without the money to do the bill that we are now proposing we want to do. So stop. They put the brakes on and they said, we're going to need to assess how much money this, we didn't know this bill happened, um, how much it's actually going to cost the state before we move ahead with this very big, expansive, wonderful economic development bundle. And so it paused. Um, and the that bill, the economic development bond bill, if you broke it up into its little pieces, the only piece that actually needs us to be in formal session for a vote is, I think, the bond bill. I think the other pieces could potentially go in an informal session as long as nobody opposes it, which is probably unlikely because they're spending bills. Republicans may have some objection, although they all supported the economic development bond bill when it went through. Um, but I think ultimately, Bill, we're going to have to wait until the middle of September. Why? In the middle of September, the auditor, Suzanne Bump, is going to send a report to the legislature that says exactly what this what this 1980s um, referenda will mean in terms of how much money has to go back to Massachusetts residents. And at that point, we'll see how much money is it, where is it going to come from, how much money do we have left to spend, and then we can proceed with, okay, so how do we move forward um, with what we already vetted for an economic development bond bill and how do we get it across the finish line. I think the big question people have is, will we come back into formal session to do that? I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know if we'll be required to if we don't 
do the bond pieces, we may be able to do a supplemental without coming into formal session. And the supplemental budget may include a lot of these other pieces. So I think we're just going to have to wait and see what the auditor comes back with um, in terms of what, how much money the state of Massachusetts is going to owe its residents as a result of a 1980s referenda that nobody knew was even in existence. couple quick How'd questions. No, that, that, that was, <laughs> Somebody that was knew it was in existence. <laughs> yes, yeah, someone knew it was there. Um, oh, yeah. Somebody knew. <laughs> so what you just said raises a couple questions for me. One is that this is dependent. What happens next is dependent on the auditor's report. Uh, how often does the legislature uh, receive information from the state auditor? By the way, auditor is a Suzanne Bump is not running for re-election. There are two Democratic candidates for auditor. I think there's a Republican candidate as well. Uh, and that will be those selections, uh, those opportunities to vote will be on the ballot on September 6th. Uh, the auditor giving information like this to the legislature, is that unusual? Well, I think it's unusual. So I've, I've been there for four years, and I don't remember us needing to see what the auditor was saying for a report in order for us to take action of a financial basis. Um, so I think this is unusual, um, but this bill is unusual, too, this referenda. Um, I think that because it's so much money that might be needed by the state, I think that the legislature is sort of saying, whoa, we don't know what the impact of this will be on our decisions and our, on our funding bills, our funding legislation that we want to do. So we better find out how much money is coming out of the coffers for this referenda before we start spending it on this other bill. Um, and in that way, quite frankly, the legislature is being responsible, right? Because it's saying we had this idea that we could spend X amount of money based on the revenues that were coming in. We made this great bill that would spend it um, and really do great things with it. And then we got a speed bump. And the speed bump was, wait a minute, you don't have as much money as you thought you did um, because you have this other law here that's going to require you to spend it to give money back to people. And so we need to get the auditor um, assessment on what that money is. Um, to be, it's interesting because I think that the citizens referenda said that money will go directly back to, um, to folks and it can go back in the form of a tax credit. So it doesn't have to be an actual check. And I think the governor is actually saying that he wants to make sure that everybody gets a check. Um, and I think this is his uh, Santa Claus legacy kind of that he wants to have as governor that he's been wanting to have since and indicating that he wants to have since the spring. Um, but we'll see, because I think the auditor will also be able to tell us um, not only how much money we need to kind of make sure that we don't spend so that people have it, but also how people will be able to access it based on the law. And well, it we'll is likely uh, it is likely that uh, if there were a letter to come to your, my, everyone's uh, mailbox, uh, dear us, uh, enclosed, as a <laughs> as, enclosed as a check from me, hope you enjoy it, love Charlie Baker. I mean, people could remember you fondly that way. Oh, absolutely. I definitely, I mean, I think that's the Santa Claus legacy right there. And he didn't get it with the bill that he proposed in the spring, um, which had a whole bunch of money for every town um, in the Commonwealth. So I guess he wants to make sure that everybody gets a check so that, you know, it's kind of like the Oprah Winfrey, everybody gets a car kind of moment in politics. But we'll see. Um, I'm interested to see not only how much money it actually translates to be. I'm interested in seeing 
Does the ARPA money that we received play a role in triggering this referenda? Somebody, um, I've read some things that have indicated that, you know, is, is that appropriate since this ARPA money was given to us from a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic kind of response? Um, is this really what the citizens of the Commonwealth had in mind, that that kind of money should be playing into um, what gets triggered? But I think that Suzanne Bump has provided very objective reports in the past, and I'm looking forward to seeing um, the report that she provides the legislature with. Okay, so and as I understand it, the legislature uh, is could be called back into formal session. Informal session is one big kumbaya moment where everyone has to vote unanimously in favor of something. Uh, otherwise, mm-hmm. it can't pass informal session. The next formal session is scheduled, what, for January, and the le- the leadership would have to call this the legislature back into session to deal with this prior to then if it's going to happen in 2022. Is that right? Um, I believe, first of all, if it's going to happen because it's the law, they don't have to call us back into session because I don't think we have to take action on it. I think it will, if everybody agrees that it happens, Right, happens. right. That's my understanding. I think that we would have to be called back into formal session if we were going to pass something before the end of the year that required um, a roll call vote. So that might include a bond bill, for example, or a supplemental that had some opposition to it. Um, I'm fully prepared to go back into session. Um, and I think many of us are, but we're just waiting to find out what's what's required. What do we need to do, and then what's required for us to do it? Okay, we're going to um, leave. We, so. we are going to leave it there. We have been speaking with State Representative Mindy Dom, who is with us every month. Thanks so much, Monty. Want to play that upbeat out music? We're going to nope. no. <laughs> we're going to get a billion dollars. Come on, something, something. Here comes Here comes This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for, certainly for myself and for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. We are talking random whites. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. This is from a company called La Pere, Gros Monsang. Gros, apparently, when you see it written, it looks like you're drinking something called Gros Monsang. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's Gros. In the past, has mostly been relegated to bulk wine or distilling grapes for brandy. Petit Monsang, which I think means like little guy, and Gros Monsang means big guy. It almost has like a dessert wine feel to it. It's susceptible to botrytis, so they do make sweet wines. This tastes like it almost might have that, which is like... It's essentially, they call it Noble yeah, Rock, it, which is my next yeah, band name. Don't grapes. steal it. We, we, so mentioned, weird. we mentioned it was a brandy grape, and this wine does taste like a brandy. Yeah. Drink this before dinner. Maybe drink it after dinner. Because it's a brandy-ish kind of feel yeah, to it. This yeah, is a unique it's wine. very different. 1899. It is organic grapes and certified organic. What's the name of this one again? La Père. Find your favorite wine and your next favorite wine at State Street.
Picture perfect days in the valley, and there's not a better place to celebrate those perfect days than at the Bridgeside Grill in Sunderland. The Bridgeside Grill has undergone a stunning transformation and expansion, and now it's time to revisit one of your favorite spots. Check out the new and expanded bar area, or dine outside on the patio. The Bridgeside Grill is open Tuesday starting at 9 a.m. and serves breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And don't forget about Sunday brunch and live music every Thursday and Sunday. The Bridgeside Grill, right in the heart of downtown Sunderland. Minutemen football lives here. Olsen lofts it. Josiah Johnson, end zone, touchdown, Massachusetts. Merriweather, daylight, end zone, touchdown, Ellis Merriweather from eight yards out. Follow the action all season long on your home for Minutemen football. The UMass Sports Network from Learfield. Touchdown, Massachusetts. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org, or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If you want to learn, The Literacy Project is the place for you. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Monty, you had a really interesting conversation that is on tape, which I'd like to share with our listeners. Could you set this up for us, please? Sure. Every year, the Connecticut River Conservancy hosts the Source to Sea Cleanup, which is a watershed-wide volunteer event asking people, wherever they are in the Connecticut River watershed area, to volunteer for a day with a bunch of other folks and pull trash out of the river. I've been doing it for the past 15 years in the Green River portion of the Source to Sea cleanup. And one of the people that has uh, inspired me to do that is one of the people that I went on a, a exploration of one of the trashiest places on the Green River with just yesterday. The weekend of Friday, September 23rd through Sunday, September 25th is the Source to Sea Cleanup, a coordinated effort up and down the Connecticut River watershed area for volunteers to pitch in, pull trash out of the river. And for years and years, I think, well, let's see, my son's 15. I think maybe this is my 15th one. I have been going to the Green River portion of the Source to Sea Cleanup at the behest of my friend and one of the chief organizers of that branch of the cleanup, Old Man River himself, David Bowles. Monty, thanks for much for coming out here to Green River Road today. Green River Road is sort of like on the outskirts of town. Are we still technically in Greenfield? I think we're on the Coleraine-Greenfield border here. We're probably about a mile and a half from the Greenfield drinking supply that this water uh, is a, a major source of. And this is a dirt road. A lot of people know Bearass Beach, which is right along this way. Yeah, this road um, several years ago got so crowded that many of the beaches actually got posted and closed because they were abused and trashed. Other beaches are still open here, but we've worked with a group of people to put signs up that are very respectful asking people to take care of this beautiful resource, the Green River, and of course the Green River Road. And you made the signs look beautiful too, which is really cool. I think it's like the little the extra effort that went into making these gorgeous handcrafted signs maybe made people want to take better care. Well, you know, it was engineered by my friend Marty, who lives up here in Coleraine, and the signs are made of wood, and we carved them, and we did them in English and in Spanish so that everybody could read them. But we're talking about moving into respect now and people standing up for the areas that they care about, and then educating people as we go about the importance of taking care of these resources. We better get out of the middle of Green River Road, which is where we were just standing, and head to where we're going. What are we going to check out here, Mr. Bowles? 
As I mentioned to you, we're now a mile and a half above the Greenfield drinking supply. We're going to be going up into a ravine here. Uh, this is Nelson Road. There is a uh, dump that's been up here probably for many decades. It's on fish and wildlife land. I have contacted the fish and wildlife people a number of times in the last five years. There's been no response to it, so we're interested in drawing attention to this because, as I said, it is a source of the Greenfield drinking supply. All right, well, let's go check this out. All righty. This is going to be one of the sites that people can come and clean up on Saturday, September 24th. Not necessarily. We're still waiting to get permission from the fishing and wildlife people about what they want to do with this site. So we're really drawing attention to it. We're hoping that some of the pressure here can actually help them to figure out how to mitigate this site. Yeah, or at least let volunteers come and try to help you clean this place up, especially if it's so close to Greenfield's drinking water. There's a potential that they'll allow that. We're not clear at this particular point. Now you can begin to see trash that's starting to come down through this creek. It's a bit dry now since we've had such a drought, but every spring this is loaded with water. Bon appetit, Greenfield. Yeah, the other thing I want to talk a little bit about, Monty, is grade A water coming into Greenfield, poor quality leaving Greenfield. When is Greenfield going to address this problem, especially yep. in this day and age? 2022, water is like liquid gold, and we feel it's okay to turn our back on this beautiful resource. Greenfield needs to be held accountable. Going down. Good. Forgot we were getting together here, so I shouldn't have worn my good sneakers. They're only four bucks, but they're fancy. <laughs> Salvation Army, major score. They're like $300 sneakers out of the box, but my uh, my wife was like, they look like sneakers you'd like. They're four bucks, you want them? I was like, yeah, get them. And then I got them and I looked them up and I was like, whoa. <laughs> no, I like them right away. I'll give you six for them. Nope. Might have to go into laundry after this one though. <laughs> Not all of the places on the Source to Sea cleanup are this difficult to navigate. There's something for everybody. I saw a little frog in there trying to stay alive. Here's a tire. Starting to see glass. More there's trash the higher we get. Plastic coming down. Oh, take a look at this one, Mr. Monkey. Hey, hey, hey. Eureka. Wow. There's a, a massive wall of trash, probably 40 yards long. 25 yards wide, probably 10 feet deep, burying itself into this ravine on top of all this other trash, as you see tires and old washing machine and looks like a refrigerator in there. And who knows what else is in here? Is there a road up top of this hill there? Is that why it's so tempting and easy to just take stuff and well, dump right, it over the Right up the here, there's a staging for a sanitation company that's been there for many, many years. And there's concern that they perhaps had some involvement but I guess there wasn't laws back then ah. protecting these kind of issues. So, so what do we do now? Do we overlook it? Do we hold the people accountable? Do we do a group effort here? But really, Greenfield, is this what we want? Do we want this for our drinking water here? And if this is fish and wildlife land, then this is technically federal, and so that we got to get the federal government involved too. Well, this almost looks like a brown site to me where you need that level of work, you know, where they're really going to do some engineering. And But I can see we could begin to clear it out. This would take a major group, of, a major company to come in here to really begin to think about working on this particular site. Step one is to convince Fish and Wildlife that something needs to be done about this place. And as I said, I, they've been contacted every year for about the last four or five years here, and there's been no response, and I'm not sure why. Okay, so you've had plenty of years, Fish and Wildlife. Maybe if somebody's listening to this and has a connection with them or feels motivated to uh, get in touch, maybe that'll add some pressure and we can start cleaning this up because right down this ravine into the river over there is where the 
Greenfield's drinking water comes from? It's absolutely where the drinking water comes from. And then I, got, I want to remind you, too, we have l wonderful drinking water, but it's being compromised by sites like this. And then Greenfield turns its back as it gets below the public swimming area, and it exits poor quality into the Deerfield River, which is really a sad dynamic. And right over there at the confluence of the Deerfield and the Green River is that tire dump that we've taken yeah. 4,000 tires out of Monty. Oh, wow. And we're still negotiating with what the next step is going to be. Obviously, there needs to be some major engineering that's going to take place. But you can see that there's still incredible amounts of work to be done surrounding hidden aspects about dumps and pollution sites along the, uh, these particular rivers. David Bowles, the organizer of the Green River portion of the Connecticut River Conservancy Source to Sea Cleanup. You can join David Bowles and me on Saturday, September 24th as we jump into the Green River to haul out trash or find a cleanup location near you. Go to ctriver.org. Thank you for that interview. That was really interesting, Monty. On tomorrow's show, for those of you who are interested in politics at all, you know that we have a primary coming up where there are contested races for lieutenant governor, secretary of state, auditor, and locally sheriff, and for the governor's council, for the Western Massachusetts governor councilor. Four candidates are Sean Allen, Jeff Morneau, Mike Fenton, and Tara Jacobs, and they will all be on our show tomorrow. We're going to have a forum, a debate, and I hope some incisive questions to help you make your decision on who to vote for for this important job. That will be tomorrow beginning here at 9 o'clock. We hope you will join us then. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. I grew up in West County, but I didn't know there were places like Nelquit until I realized that my mom needed some help. My dad was always controlling and kind of jealous. But after I left for college, it was just the two of them, and it seemed like it was just getting worse. My mom wasn't going out as much, and he would check her cell phone all the time to see who she was calling. Then he started threatening her. I talked to a friend who lives in the area, and she told me about Nelquit. I called the hotline because I was worried about her staying in the house that night. They understood why I was so worried, and they were able to help her to get to my grandma's house in Boston. Nelquit, New England Learning Center for Women in Transition, offering 24-hour crisis line support, walk-in appointments, counseling, safe plan, legal services, and supportive supervised children's visitation. If you or someone you know needs Nelquit, please reach out to them. They'll be there. 479 Main Street, Greenfield, nelquit.org, N-E-L-C-W-I-T.org or call 772-0871. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station.